Shall we bust a myth today? Among some Christians who are eager to engage stories in the real world, this is a big myth. It goes something like this. Long ago, Christians and publishing companies lived together in harmony. Then everything changed when evangelicals got fearful and or legalistic. So they chose to leave the big general market publishers and start their own little Christian publishers. Only the coming avatar of Christian creativity, master of all fantastic fiction elements, can save the world. Because, of course, he isn't a Christian author. He's just an author who happens to be a Christian. Well, our next guest, Christian creative pro and novel marketer Thomas Umstadt Jr., helps explain why Christian fans and Christian creators need to fix this fantasy with reality. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and we apply their meanings to the real world our author Jesus Christ calls us to serve. I'm A. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and also the co-author of a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. I'm Zachary Russell, and if you've ever wondered, what does the English Civil War have to do with me? Well, you're in luck because it perfectly matches up with today's topic, believe it or not which is episode 98, Should Christian Creators Abandon Secular Fiction Markets? And our guest today, Thomas Umstead Jr., is going to perfectly explain how all of this connects together. Thomas is the former marketing director of Enclave Publishing, and he's been a friend of mine for about the last seven years. So uh, it's going to be really awesome to talk to him today. I think Thomas also is not a Christian podcast host. He's just a podcast host who happens to be a Christian. Uh, <laughs> we forgot to ask him, Zach, uh, whether or not he was knocking at all the doors on Spotify, trying to get through the secular gatekeepers at this newly controversial streaming platform before he decided to go it alone and start his own novel marketing slash Christian publishing show empire. Uh, Zach, are you a Christian podcast host or did you just happen to be a Christian uh, who does <laughs> podcasts? You know, I I was reading Andrew Peterson's book, uh, Adorning the Dark, and he talks about this, that he he put that label on himself. Oh, I'm just a musician that happens to be Christian. And he, and he talked about how he felt so like hoity-toity saying that. And then he realized like how absurd and, and like annoying that is. I am so grateful he realized that. Yes. Uh, and I've, I, I mean, I've totally done the same thing, you know, but uh, I, I think it really is much ado about nothing to go down that route. It is much to do about nothing. I think it is something, that, especially if you're a Christian who's a bit more right-brained, uh, a bit more imaginative, uh, want to do something to change the world, as Thomas mentions later on in our conversation, you have to go through that stage at least once. You have to try it on. Well, I don't like just calling myself a Christian something. That sounds like a boomer thing. That sounds like something that your mama <laughs> would do. Well, I'm not your mama's Christian, so I'm not a Christian or I'm not a uh, I'm not a Christian author. I'm not a Christian creative. I'm a creative person who just happens to be a Christian. And yes, we're going to roast that a little bit. There's a few other notions that we're going to roast in this episode. So stand by in a moment for that all-important concession stand, a newly reopened with some sweet, hot concessions. First of all, we need to get a little bit more serious, though. Uh, in fact, this is one of the saddest news items we've had to share at the beginning of one of these episodes. I meant to say something about it in our last episode, actually, but now we have rather tragic update about that, uh, and that is about our previous guest on Fantastical Truth, YA fantasy novelist Lonnie Forbes. Uh, we talked to her last summer, actually, after we met her at the Realm Makers Conference. Her novel, The Seventh Son, had actually won several awards in the uh, Realm Makers Award competition, 
And I think just this month, February of 2022, book three of that series, The Age of the Seventh Son, will release. But Lonnie won't be around for the release uh, because she has died from cancer, unfortunately. Uh, just a few days ago, as we're recording this, the news hit all of the Christian creative circles uh, that she had taken a turn for the worse, uh, that her husband was there uh, with her for end-of-life care. Her three children were there. And then she went to be with Jesus. And that was just ridiculously sad and a little bit hurtful. I didn't even know her that well. Uh, we talked to her for uh, briefly for the episode we did at the conference, and then we did a more full interview with her. Of course, we will link to that in the show notes. Zach, I haven't had uh, the heart to go back and listen again, but now I want to, and not just to kind of go back through her views on suffering, uh, but it's just going to hurt to hear her voice again and just realize, well, she's not going to be around. Like This trilogy now is locked in as her only trilogy, I think. And it's um, it's probably the first time now we're nearing 100 episodes of the podcast, but the first time we've actually uh, seen the loss of one of our previous guests. Definitely go check out that episode. We'll link to it and pray for the Forbes family. And if you uh, would like to support them, uh, there's two ways you can do that that we want to ask you to consider. One is buying Lonnie's books. Uh, her trilogy is now a number one bestseller. Uh, word has definitely gotten around about these books. And um, I just bought the first and second books. And uh, it looks like the third releases in, I think you said, see about a week or two. Uh, so yeah, right now it's a number one bestseller in teen and young adult ancient civilization fiction books. So that, what a cool category. I didn't even know that existed. And then secondly, there is a GoFundMe for their family. If you've had a relative or a friend battle cancer, you know just what a toll this takes financially in a family. They have a goal of 80,000. They're about three-fourths of the way there, and 600 people so far have donated. So uh, please consider putting your name on that list and supporting them. Kevin, uh, Lonnie's husband, actually stopped by. Uh, I guess he saw that I had uh, tagged her on Facebook when I was sharing the news a few days ago, um, referenced the first interview that we did uh, for Fantastical Truth, the shorter one with Lonnie at the Realmakers Conference in July 2021. And I was remembering uh, some of the fun that we had just doing the interview and how how open she was. And you know, she was just having a glorious time, even though she was literally in the middle of cancer treatments. I mean, it helps to go to a conference, get a bunch of awards, but still, that doesn't offset this kind of pain. I've been grateful to see him, though. I mean, he's appearing as her on social media, but it's it's cool to hear from him. And he said in response to my post, he said, quote, this is Kevin, her husband. Lonnie got such a kick out of when she was doing that interview, just taking her purple wig off, which looked very real and awesome, forgetting that some people didn't know she was bald. End quote. I remembered that part as well. Uh, she wanted to make sure she didn't weird people out, but for her, this was just the new normal. This was something that she had to go through. The cancer, the treatment, uh, she counted it as uh, almost a joy, uh, being counted worthy to suffer in this way. Uh, and I believe that she is with Jesus now. And by the way, I think that Christians ought to have such a high view of God's gift of creative imagination that there's no reason to suppose, this is not to be sound cheesy or anything like that, but there's no reason to suppose that her, her career is over. It's just paused right now. I look forward to seeing what stories that she will be writing in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, even if she pauses during the, uh, the heavenly transition, uh, we know that we can look forward to thousands and thousands of years eternity of making new and better stories to glorify Jesus and share with one another. 
you know, Stephen, earlier you mentioned this whole uh, hullabaloo happening with Spotify right now. And as I've been reading a lot of the the news about this, it's brought back uh, some things Lonnie shared in her interview about cancel culture or getting hate mail online. And a lot of people get very taken up with that and, and feel very deeply affected by it. But it totally just rolled off her. You know, she had such a more eternal perspective about a lot of this you know, unfortunately, because of what she's gone through and, and, um, and now she is in eternity, but, uh, she had such a great perspective that I need to go back and listen to it because you have to keep your eyes on and why you're doing this about why you're creating and just let people say what they want and don't let it affect you. Exactly. I definitely recommend, uh, enjoying the seventh sun. We also have a review of that at Lorehaven. We'll link to that in the show notes. So many links in the show notes. Let's end this bit with a quick a moment of silence and then go to our sponsor for this episode. Our first sponsor for this episode is Johanna Frank's novel, The Gatekeeper's Descendants. Well, isn't this fitting? Uh, the entire discussion with Thomas, who we'll get to in just a moment, is all about gatekeepers. This, I think, is a bit of a different gatekeeper in this fantasy novel. Here is the description. Every choice he makes complicates his life. When a teen has a chance at redemption, can he find his way back or remain forever cursed? 1973. 13-year-old Matthew McKenzie struggles to fit in. Unable to come to terms with his father's passing five years prior, he tries to sidestep unwanted attention from violent bullies by telling little white lies. But when a fistfight lands him on the brink of death, he's shocked when he finds himself hovering outside his beaten body in the company of an overly friendly spirit. Pipera avoids change at all costs. As assistant to the head gatekeeper of an ethereal kingdom, she's less than thrilled when she's sent to Earth to aid a traumatized boy headed down a dark road. But when a supernatural rebel interferes with her job, the bright-eyed being fears she'll blunder her mission. As Matthew feels the pull of adventure from his suspicious new friend, he worries that he may never be able to right all of his wrongs. And as Pipera continues to fail to influence Matthew, she finds herself caught in an adversary's web of deceit. Can Matthew and Pipera steer clear of the trap and reach the path of enlightenment? This is The Gatekeeper's Descendants from Johanna Frank. Get the cover, complete description, and the purchase link in our show notes for this episode 98, or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, I smell something sweet and a little spicy, and that can only mean that the Fantastical Truth concession stand has reopened for business. I see quite a few items here on these shelves. Let's get through them very quickly. Uh, if you'll just hold the waste basket there, I'll throw some of the wrappers into here. First of all, this episode is going to glimpse behind the scenes of Christian professional creativity. We'll speak about the manufacture of Christian books, not just the fandom of these Christian books. But we're not changing our focus. We are still a fan-focused podcast. We are not a Christian publishing show. We can't get you published. We can't make your writing shine. Thomas Umstead Jr., our guest, already has that stuff. We're going to point you firmly in his direction if you have any questions about that stuff. Thomas runs the Novel Marketing Podcast, not us. However, it's important, we feel, to know uh, these books' fairly recent historical origin, especially if we're talking about Christian-made fiction from Christian publishers. There's a lot of myths about how Christian publishers got there and what Christian publishers need to do now. Some people, as we'll talk about, feel that we just need to step over and ignore the whole Christian publishing idea. We don't like the Christian label. We just want to be writers, fans, whatever, who happen to be Christians. The happen to be Christians thing. We'll focus on that a lot. 
Uh, see Thomas's interview with Les Stobie and our talk with Daniel Silliman for more history about Christian publishing. It is a it is it can be a niche interest, but again, I think it's important to know where these books come from if we're going to focus on these books as we do here. Uh, we also need to bust some myths, including some legalism among Christians. To appreciate Christian-made fiction, we need to engage the real world and get rid of some of these myths that grow up around the books. Myths like Christian-made fiction is all bad or Christian-made fiction is all compromised. It's all poorly written. Some of these are myths indeed, as Thomas says. We need to reject some of these myths as sentimentality about general markets and Christian markets. It's not all great in the general markets, and it's not all terrible in the Christian markets or vice versa. Do some Christians fear the world, fear the secular publishers? Is that what it's all about, just fear so that we need to be nice and not fearful? Well, that may be true in some cases, but let's not project that interpretation everywhere. Finally, at the end of this episode, uh, kind of the chapter three of our discussion, uh, we might speculate on some of the reasons why people uh, reject the very idea of Christian publishing and uh, say that secular publishing is the only way to go. Uh, we're going to do that as gently as possible. And we're not thinking about anybody in particular here. Uh, these are just ideas that we've seen floating around the Christian fan community or Christian author circles. Uh, we want to address them as gently as possible, uh, but also firmly. I believe a fantastical method of transport is opened to our cousin podcast, the Novel Marketing Podcast. So let's step through the portal and see who awaits. Our guest today built his first website at age 13 and taught his first web design class at only age 16. Since 2009, his websites and resources have helped support authors. And in 2015, he became an author himself, publishing the nonfiction book Courtship and Crisis. As a podcaster, he hosts the Novel Marketing Podcast and the Christian Publishing Show. He still serves as the CEO of Castle Media Group, the parent company of Author Media. He lives here in Austin, Texas with his beautiful wife and children, and I understand he's galloping in on a Rashadium uh, type of uh, special horse from Way of Kings. Please welcome Thomas Umstadt Jr. to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to get to ask you our uh, very trademarked Fantastical Truth question. Before we get started with our big issue, Thomas, how did you discover biblical truth and fantastical fiction, which is another way of saying, when did you accept Aslan as your personal lion and savior? So my family had a kind of on again, off again uh, relationship with television. When I was a kid, we would sometimes get the TV out of the house all together and read books instead. So I think we read the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time when I was five years old. And then every five years thereafter for each subsequent child. So we, we read through those books over and over and over again. And I'm already reading them to my three-year-old. So my oldest is three and we're reading through uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe right now, which is the first book I will battle anyone who th says that any other of <laughs> Amen. the Amen. books Amen. is the first Absolutely. one. Um, and she's really enjoying it. So it, it's fun to uh, take that again to the next generation. Do you like to do the voices to your kids or you just kind of read it normal? I, I'm still getting into the kind of audiobook narration performance element of it. But I, <laughs> I try to make Aslan nice and uh, deep and the white witch whiny, but I don't have like beaver voices. I'm, not, I'm still a Padawan in terms of uh, reading books to my kids. <laughs> you know, what's great is if you catch COVID and you can do uh, Harry Potter voices uh, even better, especially the deep raspy ones like Hagrid. <laughs> you are a wizard, Harry. It just comes right out when you've got the COVID voice as I have right now. So if anybody's wondering about my voice, as opposed to Thomas's and Zach's dulcet tones, uh, that's the explanation why. 
We brought up C.S. Lewis because he's going to come up in a Fantastical Truth episode because Lewis is one of those examples, you see, of the Christian author who did it right. Lewis was not even a Christian author. Some say he was just an author who happened to be a Christian. And we've already talked some about that phrase and the, the topic of the day about whether Christians got pushed out of secular publishers or if they just ran away, uh, abandoning the place uh, to secularism. And therefore, we need to do something different now. Uh, I would count this, I think, as a myth that fans and authors have spread about Christian publishing. And that leads to our first big uh, point of this discussion now. Uh, Thomas, I'm curious, like, what exactly you've heard uh, before we get to the clip here from your podcast that kind of uh, inspired this topic? I've heard this a lot from folks who would describe themselves as ex-evangelicals, maybe some people from more sheltered Christian environments, maybe some people who have some bitterness about the types of uh, Christian-made art or products that they grew up being made to enjoy. And unfortunately, I also hear some of these notions from aspiring authors who say, well, I'm not a Christian author. Uh, I'm just an author who happens to be a Christian. And man, we really need to just stop doing all this Christian publishing stuff. It's too separate from the world. Uh, we need to be more and more excellent so that the world will like us again. Uh, I'm curious. That's what I've heard. That's how I would phrase it. But how would you phrase uh, what you've heard that kind of led to your interest in this topic as well? So it's interesting because I host the two podcasts, the Christian Publishing Show and the Novel Marketing Podcast. And I have two different perspectives on this from those two podcast perspectives. So the easiest to explain is my novel marketing perspective. So from a marketing person perspective, Christian publishing is a genre with a group of readers who have a certain set of genre expectations. And like every genre, there are people who despise both the genre and the readers of the genre. So romance, for instance, there are people who really look down on romance as a genre. You know, Women just read romance because they can't find love in their own lives and they're losers. And if they could only read the elevated writing that I write, then um, they could be enlightened. Right. And the people, the fans of romance have no... Uh, patience for those kinds of uh, elitists. And you see that same sort of thing with every every genre, probably. Uh, mystery thriller and Spence, the least so, right? P- even high highfalutin uh, aristocrats still read a good mystery every once in a while. So that's one perspective, that it, it's a genre that needs to be respected and it's an audience that needs to be respected. And if you want that audience to buy your book, you've got to accommodate their genre expectations. You want someone to read your romance, the couple has to get together at the end. You want someone to read your Christian uh, fiction, it needs to not have a sex scene, among other things. So, so that's one perspective. The other perspective from the Christian Publishing Show is kind of a theological perspective, and it goes back to the great rift in American Christianity. It goes back about 100, 120 years between liberal Christians and evangelical Christians. And it's over. Uh, to really simplify 120 years of Christian history, it's over the doctrine of hell. If, if you want to be like, what's the one thing that separates these two major um, factions? And we don't interact a whole lot. Um, in, in the first half of the century, most denominations split, right? You have the conservative Presbyterians and the liberal Presbyterians. You have the conservative Baptists and the liberal Baptists. They have their own versions of Presbyterianism. They have their own um, structures they have their own leadership and they're no longer connected there was a great rift in christianity and the people who are talking about this often it helps if you understand which side of that rift they are on what kind of church do they go to are they going to an episcopal church 
or are they going to a Southern Baptist church? <laughs> because it really affects how they see Christian publishing. Because if you don't believe in hell, then the hell that we're trying to um, reduce is the hell here on earth. You want to help the poor. You want to do good works. You want to make everyone's lives better and be as kind and nice and good of a person as you possibly can. Whereas if you do believe in hell, you want to do those good works, but you're doing it really because the big issue is to save people from eternal fiery torment and damnation. And so you're much more concerned about the eternal state of someone than you are about their temporal state. Now that's way oversimplified, and you can send your hate mail to thomas at authormedia.com. <laughs> uh, but it really represents itself in how people see uh, Christian fiction, I feel like. And if you understand where they're coming from, from a theological background, it helps you interpret their comments on you know the state of Christian fiction. I think that's a really great point, uh, going even back to the year 1900 and some of those older disputes between Christians over doctrines like hell. And by the way, just for uber clarity here at Lorehaven, uh, we are affirming. Uh, we do affirm the doctrine of hell. Uh, it, As uh, the aforementioned Lewis has said, uh, it has the support of reason. It's always been taught by the church, and it is founded in scripture. Uh, how you look at the idea of a righteous God who punishes sinners is going to affect everything you do. It's going to affect how you understand the Great Commission. Is the Great Commission an announcement of what Jesus has done and what we are supposed to do, repent and believe in him and await his return while we organize a church to spread the gospel? Uh, or is it uh, mainly a social gospel? Are we mainly concerned with poverty and things like that? And like, uh, we should be concerned about those things. But if we do get too concerned about that, like we would get too concerned with any other gift of God, uh, then we start to jump the spiritual shark. Uh, we are taking the gifts away from the giver, and we say, no, we're just going to do this on our own way, thanks. Uh, and we're just going to ultimately ignore Jesus. And I think ultimately we're going to start missing the purpose of other gifts like Christian books, uh, Christian authoring, Christian creativity. And I do think that that motive is behind some of these phrases we hear, and I would call these myths that are spread about Christian publishing and how it got started. Some of the other myths, uh, Zach, that I've heard, I'm curious which ones you've heard, are uh, Christian authors, they're always not good at their craft or they're narrow-minded. Uh, there's the, the meta idea of, about history that uh, in the past, too many Christians abandoned Hollywood. We abandoned general market publishing. Christians will just abandon everything because they're too fearful or they're too narrow-minded, and they'll just go set up their copycat industries and then make up cheesy T-shirts and bad movies and things like that. And so the explanation goes, this is why Christians have lost influence in the culture. We no longer uh, help with the creative arts like we used to. But someday, someday, if only we can recover kindness and creative excellence, uh, we could win back the world. Uh, if we make them like Christian-made stories and books, then maybe they'll like Jesus again. Thomas, you and I talked about this topic a while back, um, off, off the air, obviously, and how it almost goes back further than the 19, early 1900s to the Puritan-Pilgrim split. The Puritans were sort of the reformers of the Anglican Church, and the Pilgrims were the separatists, and they're the ones that came here to, the, to America. And actually, my wife uh, traces back to one of the Pilgrims on the Mayflower, believe it or not. This is something that resonates with me because, you know, do you want to stay and try to change the culture, or do you want to try to just separate from the culture and build your own thing. And I, I think this is a debate we've been having for quite a long time. But in, any thoughts about that? Because I, you were actually the one that kind of pointed me to that, that that's almost the more deeper foundation of this debate within Christian publishing. It's true. And 
If you look at the Christians, the, the Protestants in England in the 1600s, when we say we stay, they stayed and tried to reform, what we mean is they fought a war against <laughs> the less good Christians. So you had the Protestant Presbyterian Calvinists basically going to war against the non-Calvinists. And it's known as the English Civil War. And the Presbyterians won. And they set up and they executed the king and replaced him with no one. So for a time, there was no king of England and no queen either. So they were doing the whole chopping the head off the king thing way before the French were doing it. They had their own revolution, except instead of it being a revolution of uh, secular anti-Christians, which is what you saw in the French Revolution, right. there was mass genocide of, of Christians. They called them um, Republican baptisms, where they would take Catholics out in the river and any Protestants they could find and just drown them. They'd tie them wow. together and, and drown them. Uh, French Revolution was really rough on Christians. The um, English Revolution, though, was also rough on Christians, but it depended what kind of Christian you were. <laughs> so it was basically uh, the Calvinists killing the non-Calvinists. And But that wasn't the only kind of Protestant response. There was also the Pilgrim response where they were like, peace out. We're not going to try to convert you. We're not going to try to make you a better Christian. We're going to go to America and we're going to live a peaceful life uh, with our own religious beliefs and we're not going to fight. <laughs> we're not going to go to war to make you better Christians. And that how militant are you? How much are you willing to battle culture as opposed to creating your own separate culture? Those two approaches you kind of see in every generation manifested. Are, are we going to be a reformer and fight or are we going to be a separatist and leave? And uh, it's, it's interesting to see how that reflects itself in different uh, communities. And I think it's a great opportunity for somebody to write a good sci-fi where instead of the new world, you have the new planet and mm. people are fleeing and staying. And because what ended up happening to finish the story of the English civil war, the Presbyterians won in the short term, but they lost ultimately in the long term. And the you know, monarch came back. King Charles I got his head cut off, but who came after Oliver Cromwell? King Charles II, the son of Charles I. And their uh, persecution arose of all of the persecutors. So the pre Presbyterians who were being persecuted suddenly, uh, or that persecuted, suddenly found that they were being persecuted. And so they, they fled to America too. So they came to America. They ended up coming to America after all, but they came to America after having fought this battle. And the memory of that great and painful civil war really informed the American Revolution. And the government that we created was in part a reaction to the flaws that we saw in the government that led to that civil war. Even last week, we heard debates about similar issues, how Christians are to influence our culture. And I find it interesting just listening to that reminder from history, Thomas, is that people will often say, well, the church should take the lead. Uh, the church should be a significant influence in culture. And then at the same time, some of the same people will also suggest or state outright, no violence, no use of power. This is not a Christian thing to do to go to war against the King of England. And I mean, in that case, I might agree. I don't want Calvinists chopping off any heads. I much prefer they just get ornery in the comments section. But it seems to me that you often in the real world cannot have one without the other. If Christians are to try to stay and fight and preserve their influence at a publisher, uh, much more so a government, uh, that's going to lead to conflict. Uh, a pacifist Christian certainly couldn't do that, but even a peace-minded Christian who understands that sometimes conflict is needed 
is going to run into all kinds of challenges if your institution, if your publisher doesn't want you. And even if you're on the board of this publisher and the publisher is going in another direction and you're one of 12 board members and the rest of them don't want to hear from Christians, thank you very much. What option would you have other than to be a complete revolutionary uh, causing some kind of rude effect and then give, according to some, giving Jesus a bad name? There's two kinds of power in publishing. Let's get real specific so we know what we're talking about here. Please. The two forms of power are gatekeepers and tastemakers. A gatekeeper is somebody like a literary agent who either takes you on as a client or doesn't, or an acquisitions editor, uh, or a book buyer at a bookstore. And so there's gatekeepers all up and down the road. And it only takes one of those gatekeepers to say no to you to cut you off from their garden. And, and so that garden, maybe Barnes and Noble doesn't like you, so they don't put you on the shelf or, you know, Thomas Nelson doesn't like you, so they don't acquire your book. And th- so that's one form of power. You get to decide what gets published, what doesn't get published, what gets put on the shelves, what doesn't get put on the shelves. The other form of power, though, is tastemakers. And these are people who use their prestige to determine what is good, what excellence is, and and they determine excellence. So these are like awards. So who's the best artist of paintings right now? Well, if you look at the market and what people are buying, it's actually Christian. It's Thomas Kincaid, right? He's probably sold the most in terms of dollars of any artist. And if not, he's in the top five, especially of living artists, right? You know, the greats of old may be beating him still in terms of prints, but Thomas Kincaid's doing really well. He's making a lot of money, except the tastemakers hate him. (laughs) The tastemakers exclude him from uh, their awards. They don't give him awards. They don't celebrate him. So he's able to get past the gatekeepers, but he's not able to get past the tastemakers. Now, on the flip side, who is number one in audio narration, um, kind of audio storytelling? Well, for a long time, it was Focus on the Family. The Peabody Awards for great uh, audio narration, Focus on the Family, won them year after year. Why? Because the Adventures in Odyssey and Radio Theater were truly excellent. The tastemakers liked it, but the gatekeepers did not. You don't hear Focus on the Family on secular radio, despite the fact that it's the best, (laughs) according to the tastemakers, (laughs) but it's being blocked by the people who make the decision for what gets aired on the radio and what doesn't. In fact, even a lot of Christian radio stations don't air Adventures in Odyssey for one reason or another. So if, if we want to have power as a, as a movement, as Christians, those are the two roles that matter. Notice being an author is not in either of these. <laughs> authors <laughs> are not tastemakers and authors are not gatekeepers. They can do a little bit of tastemaking in the sense of endorsing books, but really you have to have a podcast. Uh, I would say Lorehaven actually is more of a tastemaker in the sense that you're able to start saying, here is what excellence is. Here's what we believe excellence is because the more people who read a book and the more they talk about a book, the more other people want to read the book because reading a book is a very social experience. And so to him who has readers, more readers will be given. And so that tastemaker role is a very important, very pivotal role for determining uh, what is successful. Well, and you're so right about tastemaking being very socially oriented uh, and very relational driven because a little trick I found out a long time ago was that the New York Times bestseller list is not simply here are the books selling the most copies right now. It is a curated list of which books that they like at the New York Times that are selling lots of copies. 
and it, there's been scandal after scandal with this list that there's been a number of books that have been way outperforming other books that are totally absent from that list. And so it is very much a tastemaker list. That's right. In fact, not just scandals, but Supreme Court cases. There was a one author in the 80s went, I believe, all the way to the Supreme Court suing the New York Times for excluding his book, even though he deserved to be on the list. And I think he deserved to be number one. They excluded him uh, because they didn't like his genre. They didn't like the style of the book. It wasn't sophisticated enough. Um, and there's a real classist element to all of this. It is the right. wealthy and the powerful in the cities judging the poor and the not powerful in the suburbs and in the countryside. And evangelicals in general are not urban elites. They're not or the urban wealthy. They tend to be more suburban and rural. And the um, and again, these are big generalizations. But if you look at the numbers, they pan out in terms of being more true than not true. And so those urban elites that are often very hostile to Christianity and specifically hostile to Jesus in hell, those two things. You can be as Christian as you want talking about being nice to people. <laughs> but once you include either talking about Jesus specifically or hell specifically, that's when the gatekeepers turn down the volume and that's when the uh, tastemakers start ignoring you. We need to go on the wider road, Thomas. That, that's too narrow of a road. <laughs> well, a couple of episodes ago, we, we touched on this a little bit by talking about uh, the temptations inherent to Christian celebrities, whether they're authors or anybody else. The readers, the fans can almost uh, act like gatekeepers in a sense as well, because uh, you might treat an author like an angel who can't do any wrong, or you might treat them like a devil. Uh, the difficulty there is when an author does start making those kinds of compromises in order to get past the gatekeepers. You know, it's okay, it would seem nowadays uh, to talk all you like about Jesus. Uh, but if you start talking about uh, a particular view of marriage based in Scripture or particular views of men and women and their definitions based in Scripture, uh, you're out. Uh, that belief is uh, is completely shunned at, uh, at, the, at the top levels there with those more uh, urban publisher types. And I, I do see that going on. What I also see going on is that some Christians will have this rather naive outlook about general market publishers. And I think Maybe that lies behind this myth of if only, if only Christians made better stories, if only we weren't so political, if only we weren't so mean, then the gatekeepers would let us in. Uh, Thomas, it sounds like uh, you believe that there is some truth to the fact that some gatekeepers and or tastemakers just won't like you if you believe certain things. Is it really that simple or is there any nuance there just for any listener who's raising the objection, wait a minute. Some Christians are real jerks, and they do need to be kept out of the secular publishers. It's interesting because it's not just Christians that are being excluded. It's also atheists now <laughs> that, that uh, believe true. in truth. And like if they're really hard on the science and they believe in scientific truth over psychological truth or bio uh, biological truth over psychological truth, they're now getting in trouble. And I mean, and conservatives just in general, people who are more right-leaning. And uh, of the big five, four have made a concerted effort to start excluding conservative voices from being published. And there was a big drama over uh, Vice President Pence getting published with one of these because the publisher didn't want to publish him. And, and Trump still doesn't have a publishing deal. Every author gets a publishing deal after they are president, right? The uh, presidential autobiographies are some of the top-selling books every year that they come out going back to Ulysses S. Grant. And so Ulysses S. Grant's autobiography is this massive hit. And ever since then, presidential autobiography has been really big. There's no Trump autobiography. It's very telling. And at the same time, if you look at best-selling books, 
the sales of the top 100 books in 2021 was down, I think, between 30% and 50% from just the year before. 2021 to 2020, uh, the top books were less selling. And only one book in all of 2021 sold over a million copies, uh, as far as I know. And it's American Marxism by some Fox News commentator. Oh, yeah. So what's happening is the big publishers, the gatekeepers, are so strongly believing in their kind of religious convictions and their political convictions that they are making decisions in the benefit of those convictions to the detriment of their commercial interests, <laughs> because right. these are books that would sell a lot of money. A Trump autobiography would be a smash hit, right? No, no one doubts that it would be a bestseller. No one doubts it would be a number one New York Times bestselling book the year it came out. And yet the publishers are not clamoring uh, for that. And it, I think it's very, very telling. And I think what we'll see is that the publishers who are willing to open up to more diverse political views and more diverse religious views are going to end up gaining market share and, and they'll eat it away from those big publishers. You know, you said something here that's so true, Thomas, is that these are fundamentally religious disputes religious, that we're having. Amen. Yeah. So even if a Christian author is excellent and winsome and, you know, the story is amazing and very popular, if it doesn't fit the religious agenda of the publisher, and I'm including secularism here as a religion, then it's out, you know? And I, I think that is a huge myth, uh, as Stephen was talking about, that that we, we can sort of hang on to. The, if, I just, if I'm just the best, you know, author of this, uh, well, it doesn't matter. If, if you're not part of this religion <laughs> that this publisher holds to, that's it. Because you're right, Thomas, that that is the higher goal than just profit. You know, it, it's funny. I, I see so much uh, commentary on social media. It, a lot of it is, I'm sure, just bots or whatever. But I, I see capitalism being used as a dirty word. And, it, and it's pretty obvious that these are a lot of this is bot farms from communist countries or whatever. But these publishers are not fundamentally capitalists. They're not just greedy, dirty, soulless, unprincipled capitalists that just care about money. Like, no, <laughs> these are people that are fundamentally religious in a way. And so we have to kind of reckon with that, that we just may not fit in there. If Thomas Kincaid is not good enough, if Focus on the Family Radio Theater is not good enough, you will never be good enough to be accepted by your enemies. The one thing you have to realize about your enemies is that they're not your friends. <laughs> you love an enemy. We as Christians yeah. are called to love our enemies, That's right. but you love your enemy in a very different way that you love your friend. And part of the way that you love an enemy is by reducing their ability to do evil against you. Because helping them do evil against you or against anyone else is itself evil, right? So uh, this is, uh, you see this in the Tinkers, actually, in the Wheel of Time. I know you just did an episode about the Wheel of Time, but they're in, in the Tinkers religion, uh, violence is evil. And they want to run away, not only to protect themselves, but to protect the doers of violence from right. harming themselves with their violence. And so you have to realize if somebody is your enemy, part of the way that you can love them is by making it harder for them to do evil against you. It doesn't mean you just keep submitting yourself to abuse time after time. Thomas, I so agree with that. Uh, it immediately brings to mind, though, the question, uh, if we really, as Christians, have enemies out there, why do so many aspiring authors or fans carry these myths that if only we were nicer, then they would like us. And we'll deal with you know, some of those potential speculative motivations a little bit later on in chapter three. You guys have mentioned that this is fundamentally a religious objection to particular beliefs or particular kinds of authors. 
uh, religion apparently shared by these uh, these urban gatekeepers at the major uh, general market publishers. I wonder then, is this not a way to respect them as enemies? I, I think a a very robust enemy should command a certain amount of respect. And in that case, you don't have to say, well, they're just greedy. They're just after the money, all of that kind of thing. No, apparently a lot of these people do have principles. They have shared beliefs that they call equity and diversity and all of these things uh, that just happen to exclude now increasingly uh, biblical views of family and male-female differences, among other beliefs. Uh, It occurs to me that some of that is a very sincerely held belief, and yet at the same time, I'm sure some of it is just fashionable. Uh, there is a, there's a bit of a cultural gatekeeping in that you cannot get into a particular banquet unless you're dressed a certain way or you know just exactly uh, what courses arrive in what order or where the particular utensils go on, on the plate. Like Some of that is just fashion. Thomas, before we move on to chapter two, I'm just curious, what is your best guess about how much of this is sincerely held belief at these general market gatekeepers and how much is just fashionable? How much is trying to stay on trend and impress the opinions of the new high priestly class among our secular culture? Not sure if it matters because the actions are the same. True. If it's World War II and you're fighting the Germans, right? You had units that were Nazis. You had SS units where every member of the unit was a Nazi. And then you had units that were just regular Germans who'd been drafted. They probably didn't care about politics. They probably don't care about the Nazis. Here's the thing. They're still shooting at you. And their bullets are just as deadly. So does it really matter (laughs) whether or not they're a true believer or not? What really matters is their actions. If they're being hostile, then you need to treat them as somebody who's hostile and love them in a way. I'm not saying don't love them. And and the war metaphor is perhaps not a good metaphor because I'm not advocating going to war. My my ancestors were, like you, Zach, the ones who left. (laughs) They were not the ones who stayed and fought to try to purify England. They were the ones who left uh, to form a new country and a new way of life uh, with their ideals and, and, and avoid that conflict. And I lean that way more often than not. I'm not a pure separatist, uh, but I do lean in that way. No, I agree with that because Jesus uh, has taught us through the apostles, uh, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. And if you are faced with two alternatives, leave and try to do your own thing with your friends versus stay and fight and don't let the general market publisher go down with their wokeism and their false religion, uh, frankly, it makes sense to leave and try to start a thing with your friends where, you'll, where you will have least resistance and more influence. Uh, I think that that may be part of loving your enemies. You know, Jesus himself told his apostles, hey, if you come into a city and they receive you, great, you know, feel free to stay and share the news of my kingdom. But if they won't have you, does Jesus say stay and fight? Uh, does Jesus say, try to be nicer? Don't be so political, you guys. No, he says, shake the dust from your sandals and move on to the next town. There's some precedent in scripture for that behavior. And I think that Christians can arguably opt for just that sort of option uh, in the present day. Now, in defense of the Puritans, though, because I don't want to feel like we're beating up on them. Jesus also told his uh, disciples to sell their cloak and buy a sword. So uh, you can true. make an argument <laughs> Sometimes for you need to. standing and fighting. And, and we, we like that in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, th- this is what calls for wisdom, because there isn't always an exact obvious right or wrong choice. Uh, there are ethical quandaries. Uh, there is foolish decisions based on your situation, and there are wiser decisions based on your situation. Like It's very difficult to sort through these issues, and frankly, that's why we need complex, fantastical stories 
to help us simulate these kinds of difficult challenges that we face in a world that is increasingly hostile to Jesus. Shall we pause once more from exploring with Thomas gatekeepers and all that sort of thing and open the gate to sponsor two for this episode? Once again, it be us. The recently opened Lorehaven Guild, a fantastic and rather exclusive community hosted exclusively on Discord. This is a Discord server where we engage in monthly book quests. This community is not exactly safe, but it is good. It is a Christian-run community open to anybody who subscribes free to lorehaven.com. We finished our Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe book quest in January, and now that it's February, we are questing through H.L. Burke's Why a Superhero Adventure Power On. You can get all those details in our show notes. Uh, you should also subscribe free to Lorehaven if you've not already. That's how you get your exclusive invitation to the Lorehaven Guild as well as optional updates for the articles, the weekly reviews and podcast episodes that we share at Lorehaven. Just go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe or go to any page on the site and look for the little pop-up at the bottom. That's how you join the Lorehaven Guild exclusive community on Discord. I think if there's any principle that should guide us, it's that influence should not be the primary value. That's putting the cart before the horse. I fully agree with that. I think faithfulness is the most important Obedience. goal. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, it's a trap sometimes to look at characters in the Bible like Joseph or Daniel or Esther and say, look at all the influence they had. You know, they, they were put in these positions of authority and look how they were able to influence, all, you know, these very big secular kingdoms for the glory of God. It's like, well, okay, but they didn't chase influence they chased faithfulness and then God gave them influence as a result. And I, I think the real trap today that we face as Christians is reversing that. And then that is just going to lead to compromise. If we only worship the gatekeepers, then they will smile upon us. <laughs> if we only submit to the tastemakers, then we can be successful. Uh, that is the broad path that leads to destruction. Well, Zach, you also cut straight to a foundational issue is that of motivation. Uh, If I'm speaking to a Christian who wants to have influence, uh, influence for what? And I think a a, a good Christian, a thoughtful Christian might answer there, well, for the Great Commission. I want to see souls saved. I want to see the gospel spread. I want to see lives changed. And I think that is a fantastic motive for influence, but I think it is a secondary motive. We've talked about this on many a Fantastical Truth episode, that even the Great Commission, as great as it is, is a secondary goal for the Christian. It's not the sum total, the main purpose of why we do what we do. The main purpose or chief end of what we do is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That will lead to faithfulness. That will lead to right use of imagination when we are making books or sharing the stories that we love. I think that ought to be our primary goal is reflecting God's glory back to him rather than to just try to get people saved. I think that we have inherited this impulse from some uh, well-intended, large uh, church-oriented, seeker-friendly type mindsets. uh, And I think that that is something that we maybe do need to reevaluate. Again, that doesn't mean all that stuff is wrong any more than Puritans occasionally taking up a sword may be wrong. It just calls for wisdom to understand what is the nature of our current moment What are we supposed to do given our circumstance and our talents and our abilities and our role? Uh, And by the way, looking back to our ancestors and asking, well, what did they do? And that leads, I think, to chapter two of our discussion about the truth, why Christians left general publishing 
last century. And Thomas, this is where your interview with Lesto becomes in uh, from your Christian publishing show. We'll bring that in in just a moment. I think that many Christians are casting their assumptions from the current moment back in time. They're saying, well, this is only about one story, uh, fearful or legalistic uh, Christians leaving a place uh, instead of trying to influence it with winsomeness for Jesus. And there's this myth, as we've mentioned, about Christian publishers of yesteryear uh, that they only got started uh, because the people who started them didn't want to deal uh, with the general market publishers. But if only the Christian publishing founders, the authors, and whomever had been nicer, uh, then we wouldn't have had to go off and create our little Christian subculture. So, Thomas, I'd love to hear that interview if you've got that uh, ready for us. Yeah. Now, you were talking about secular publishers, and I want to ask this question because it's a, a question that's come up on the podcast before, and that is, um, why have Christian publishers at all, right? Because there was a time when there was, you know, just publishers, right? Gutenberg was the first publisher, first uh, things he published. He published the Bible, he published indulgences, and he published uh, gossip, right, and, and news, and it was all coming off the same publishing press. At what point did it start to separate where you had Christian publishers and Christian retailers? Well, that started probably in the 1940s because back in the late uh, 1950s, we already had several Christian publishers, including Moody Press. Actually, Moody Press you know, goes back all the way to D.L. Moody with his Colportage Society. And in 1941, it became Moody Press. So there were, and Fleming H. Revelle existed, uh, would you believe it, under the time, in the time of D.L. Moody. And he was a brother-in-law to D.L. Moody. Hmm. And they reached an agreement. D.L. Moody would publish the paperbacks, the little ones that you sold for 20 cents or 15 cents. And uh, Fleming H. Revelle would get the hardback rights. And and that didn't change until the 1930s. Uh, so uh, Christian publishing was really struggling to get into the system of bookstores and all the rest of it. The Booksellers Association was not formed until the 1950s. You're talking about the Christian Booksellers Association? Right, right. So if I understand correctly, Christian publishers were being excluded from traditional bookstores. And this is an important piece of history that I think a lot of people didn't realize. We didn't leave because we wanted to leave. We left because we were pushed out. And instead of going home, we created our own separate economic structure. And this, everyone listening, hear this because we're going through this again, right? We're getting pushed out again uh, of various online places. And in the generations that have come before knew what to do. They didn't go home. They didn't give up. Uh, instead, they created their own publishers and then they created their own bookstores. That is a fantastic interview. I loved every moment of it. And he was such a great guest. And as you can tell, he was there for a lot of that. I mean, uh, he was able to share so much of his experience getting involved in these Christian bookstores uh, and these Christian publishers. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Thomas, I did, however, detect an uptick in your passion when you were talking about, okay, let, let's go here. Let's go here. Christian publishers were being excluded from traditional bookstores. This is important. You say we didn't leave because we wanted to leave. We left because we were pushed out. 
I wonder if you could just pick up on that quote and, and just explain like what leads to your interest specifically there uh, and why it's so important for listeners to understand the history of this uh, rather than kind of feeling an answer that may or may not reflect the historical reality. I love going around bullies. When someone is using their power aggressively, uh, there's two ways to handle it. You can uh, approach them directly and try to outbully the bully, or you can just go around them. This was the island hopping strategy in World War II. There were whole islands that were fortified and ready for a battle, and we hopped right over them. <laughs> and all of those troops on that island ended up getting trapped. And it's like, if we don't show up to fight you, you can't fight us. <laughs> and so the, those islands ended up having peace because they got hopped over. Now, we did land on some islands, and it was very violent when we did. And obviously, I'm just using, again, war as a, a metaphor, but I'm really into World War II, so I, I find it working <laughs> in as, as metaphors. And this approach of like, you know what, I don't have to submit to you, and I will create my own separate structure, and I can find success in doing that. Because Christian publishing has been incredibly successful. If you, if you, instead of measuring it by what the tastemakers like, you measure it based off of what readers like. And Christian books have sold billions of dollars worth of books. It's a very vibrant industry that employs a lot of people and uh, until recently really stood on its own feet. Now, an interesting thing that's happened in, in the last five to 10 years is that those Christian publishers have been retiring. Those, those initial folks like Les Stobie, who I interviewed, he's, I believe, in his 90s. And the people who are, when they're leaving, some of them are selling their companies to big secular, secular publications. And often with that also comes Bible translations. So Thomas Nelson was sold to HarperCollins. Thomas Nelson's in charge of the New, uh, New King James translation. Um, Zondervan uh, was also, I believe, sold to HarperCollins. And uh, they're in charge of the NIV translation. So New King James and NIV are now you know, the custodians of those translations are secular companies with a pure profit motive, or at least until recently, a pure profit motive. Now they, uh, some of these companies have something, uh, some new religion that's starting to emerge. Yeah, social very, profit motive too. Yeah, yeah. Strongly held uh, position, but there's still a lot of people in publishing that just are just in it for the money. There's always going to be those. No religion is able to uh, fully replace the religion of mammon. <laughs> uh, the mammon is a, a very popular God uh, for, for many people. But what, what encourages me is the fact that we don't have to just give up and we can find success by, by creating direct relationships with readers. And you're seeing this in uh, music as well. Uh, the billboard for top hip hop song last week was for a Tom McDonald song. Tom McDonald is 100% independent. He's gone completely around the record labels. He doesn't get played on the radio <laughs> and he's created a direct relationship with his readers he, or his uh, listeners. He sells them CDs still. He sells tens of thousands of CDs directly to his listeners. He's making tons of money and he's topping the charts. Now, Billboard is a algorithmic chart and it's still possible to do well in an algorithmic chart but they exclude him from all of the curated charts because they don't like him. They don't like his politics. They don't like what he has to say he's an offensive rapper. Uh, he's very offensive, <laughs> but uh, rap is a genre that celebrates that. And he's been able to find millions of listeners. And we can do the same thing as Christians. We can create our own structures and reach people directly with our own writing and don't have to just give up and, and to these tastemakers and gatekeepers who 
don't like Christ. Some of them really, really don't like Christ. And they're going to use every ounce of their power to keep Jesus out of anything that they produce or, or endorse. Okay, so now I got to ask you a question. It's sort of a devil's advocate question, but how do we do this since Christian bookstores, physically anyway, are no more? Like you can't just go down to Lifeway or Family Christian Store um, and even a lot of, you know, regular physical bookstores are gone like Borders, you know, pour one out. I used to love Borders, but I loved going into Lifeway and it wasn't that long ago that they're, they were all over the place. So how does this work now that even just these avenues are gone? It works online. Uh, there's actually a lot and it works in person at special events. So there's still a ton of Christian bookstores, but many of them don't have a physical presence. They just go from... Uh, book event to book event. And and you've been at a homeschool convention. You've seen what it's like for hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of books to be sold in a weekend <laughs> at one of these big uh, book conventions. And there's bookstore after bookstore and each bookstore is curating their own kind of collection of books. And they often line up with really specific uh, denominations, right? So you'll have a really Calvinist bookstore and then you'll have a real Mennonite bookstore and they'll have some of the same books, but they'll also have some separate books. And and it, you can just walk from one to the other and see, and you're buying books. And it's it's a very vibrant, very healthy um, industry that's totally off the radar. So if we're measuring success by social media mentions, if, you, if you're not a part of that community, you have no idea. You're like, oh, homeschoolers, that's not a very big market. How many yeah. homeschoolers are there really? And you're like, well, as long as you're thinking that way, you're not going to make any money from those people. <laughs> I don't exactly think they're hashtagging, you know, all of the details on Twitter. <laughs> Are they though? Even homeschoolers may, may be more uh, well-adjusted to stay off of Twitter. Yeah, there's, that, there's engaging the, the world, yeah. but you don't, the world does not equal Twitter. Not always. Thomas, yeah. Just to I, clarify, that's a slam against Twitter, not homeschoolers, because <laughs> oh, we absolutely. are a homeschooling family as well. No, absolutely. So. Very homeschool friendly. And of course, in our last episode, we just had uh, S.D. Smith, uh, the groundbreaking independent full-time author of the Green Ember series, uh, which has found a huge response among homeschoolers. Homeschoolers love this story about uh, little rabbits who get driven out of their home and into the resistance. So this is definitely not your grandmama's homeschoolers. They just wanted to stay home and, you know, bake bread and wear suspenders and things like things have definitely changed. And those stereotypes are no longer true. And the stereotype is no longer true of uh, the successful author must always appear in a bookstore. Like I'm by no means a successful author myself, uh, but it occurs to me just talking about physical bookstores uh, that at some point I experienced a paradigm shift. Uh, my book, uh, the book I co-authored, The Pop Culture Parent, presumably it appears on bookstore shelves somewhere, but I have never once thought to go out and look for it. And this book released in fall of 2020. Uh, all the sales that I know of are at online or on special events, like you said. And we've sold the book at the Rollmakers Bookstore, which goes to homeschool conferences and uh, not just writers conferences. And I have seen hundreds and thousands of people eagerly embracing these books. Uh, there are no gatekeepers with those kinds of events like there would be uh, even with a, a Christian uh, bookstore network, uh, much more so a, a general bookstore. Uh, there are ways to get around and, and the way to do it is to create your own institutions, uh, to take the path of least resistance, to seek cultural influence in a unique and inventive way, uh, rather than complaining uh, that the urbane gatekeepers don't like you or don't like Jesus. There there are ways of doing this, uh, certainly at least in a free country. It says in Proverbs that the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. 
And when you go around a gatekeeper, not only do you no longer have to submit to the gatekeeper's opinion of your writing, but you also don't have to give them the money because gatekeepers <laughs> are really expensive. You pay a toll to go through every gate and it's not a small toll. A publishing company takes 85% of the revenue uh, or as much as 85% of the revenue for your book. And tastemakers also cost money. If you want to win an award for your book, you have to pay money for your book to be submitted to that award. It's hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars to submit your book to the award. And so when you decide, I'm not going to play their game, I'm going to leave the game completely, you actually often get more money as a result. Instead of making a dollar per book that you sell, if you're selling directly to a reader at a um, homeschool convention, you might be making $10 or $15 per book that you sell. And there are people very wealthy (laughs) who are making very good money supporting their families with their writing in this alternative economy that we've created, while traditionally published authors who are trying to submit to the gatekeepers are struggling to put food on the table. And they're like, I need a, a second job. My spouse has to work because this isn't paying, paying for me. When, um, if they would just be willing to go around the gatekeeper, they may actually be able to put food on the table and put their kids through college if they want to. I think it's totally fine, by the way, just just so we're clear, and, and, and this is sort of a con- late addition to the concession stand, it's totally fine to write stories for a general audience. Like, we're, we're, th- this isn't necessarily you have to write a story to a Christian audience and only find Christian readers and only go to Christian events. I think we just have to recognize that the gatekeepers of those general audiences may not allow us to write the story we want. They may want certain changes. You know, they may want certain you, you have to pay the, the toll, like you said, Thomas, and a lot of times that's an ideological toll. You have to shape things in certain ways so that that gatekeeper will allow you in. And I, I think we just have to ask ourselves, why are we seeking their approval? And, and I'm saying this to myself, like I very much struggle with the, the idol of approval, okay? Just being real honest here. We, we have to really just look at our own, our own heart sometimes and say, well, what am I, what should I be the most loyal to? Well, I should be the most loyal to God, first of all, but secondly, loyal to my reader. And that's really all that matters. Now, I think there are some good tastemakers out there. I think there are some friendly tastemakers to Christians. And certainly at Lorehaven, we're trying to do that. We're, we're trying to be very much a, a, a positive force for change as tastemakers, I guess. But, you know, Stephen mentioned S.D. Smith a minute ago, and I, I just want to harp on that for a second. Naomi, heard about S.D. Smith completely separately from me, okay? Naomi doesn't, you know, go through like Christian fantasy websites or forums or anything to find what the latest book is. She just heard about it from some friends who heard about it from some, some friends, probably from a homeschool conference or something because we're in the homeschool world. But, you know, the, the word can get out and you just have to have that willingness to, like you said, Thomas, just go around the powers and just find the audience directly sometimes. And it's okay to be a Christian who writes books. In uh, putting my marketing hat back on, when you're writing for a genre, you need to conform to those genre expectations. And if you can do that in good conscience, then there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's okay to be a Christian who write, who makes you know, light bulbs or who, who does plumbing or a, a Christian who does a marketing podcast, right? Novel marketing is not a Christian podcast. It's not explicitly Christian. I don't hide the fact that I'm Christian, but it's not a marketing podcast for Christian authors. It's a podcast for 
authors. And I understand the difference of the audience expectations with having a, a podcast like that compared to the Christian publishing show, which is explicitly Christian. And we'll jump into discussing the theology of, of a topic. And, and I'll still use biblical examples from time to time on my secular podcast, uh, but I do it in a way where I explain the example a little bit more because <laughs> I don't assume a level of biblical understanding. And I don't just use examples from the Bible. I probably use far more examples from World War II because it's an <laughs> occupational hazard of being, being a fan uh, of history. And But going back to the genre thing, if you want to write for a secular genre, you can do that. But you have to realize that you have to conform to those genre expectations. And those genre expectations are shifting. I've talked with Christian authors whose publishers are saying, you need to work in an LGBT character into your story because we're only publishing stories now with LGBT characters. And so if you can do that in good conscience, you can write that kind of story. But if that violates your conscience, then perhaps you shouldn't write that kind of story, right? Some Christians can eat meat without it violating their conscience and others can't, right? There's a lot of writing in the New Testament about, you know, you need to submit to your own conscience and what you have the faith to be able to do and, and not to judge someone who doesn't have the faith for eating meat to eat meat. You don't judge them and, and vice versa. There's, there is freedom in Christianity. And, you know, just because I lean towards a separatist personally, doesn't mean that I think that the Puritans are evil <laughs> um, and, or not Christian. I think that they came to those conclusions from scripture, same way I came to my conclusions from scripture. And I can understand their thinking, even if I don't fully uh, agree with it. I think that's a really great point. Again, it goes back to the wisdom. What situation are you in? What types of people are you trying to connect with, with the stories you love, or for creators with the stories you're writing? Uh, this is a Proverbs question, not necessarily an epistle question. You know, there are things within Christianity that are absolutely right and absolutely wrong. And then there are other things that are, I mean, some people call them gray areas, and I don't really like that term. But there are some things where you have to pray, make the best decision you can, and trust in Jesus to cover where you went wrong. Uh, it is his righteousness that we're working in, by the way, not manufacturing our own uh, for influence or anything like that. I think that leads uh, rather significantly to uh, chapter three of our discussion about why Christians are resonating with the myth then that the only way Christians can influence the culture and win souls for Christ and all of that uh, is by somehow overcoming the gatekeepers, uh, either with uh, some kind of political pressure or with winsomeness and nuance and putting in the right kinds of characters and that kind of thing. What I've seen, uh, Thomas and Zach, and, and even shared some of these thoughts myself on occasion, what I've seen, let's just, okay, instead of accusing some unknown person out there, I'm, I'm just going to own these thoughts because I think that every Christian with a creative streak needs to go through this thought process at some point. What I've seen is looking at Christian publishers, and I think, because all I see are Christian publishers, because I grew up Christian, and you know, this is mainly my world, like, well, they're the gatekeepers. Those people are the gatekeepers. They only want to publish romance. They only want to publish doctrinal compromise. Uh, they only want to publish the types of books that I would disagree with, or adult coloring books, or the shack back in the day, and that sort of thing. Those are the only gatekeepers. So. Based on what I see from the evangelical publishers then, just judging them in this way, I could then look to an unknown space, the secular gatekeepers, and I think, well, those guys must be better. 
but then I don't know that they have just as many strict rules about content and expectations for author beliefs and such. I don't know what I don't know. And especially if I've grown up either homeschooled or in a conservative church or a family where I feel rather awkward and ostracized from the majority culture, this narrative helps explain how I'm feeling. Uh, the Christian church, the evangelicals are the gatekeepers. They're the ones who are keeping me out. I may be able to get in somewhere else. And the result, I will say, the result I do see for some uh, well-meaning Christian authors is a lack of respect and regard for evangelical publishers, uh, a kind of a scoffing at the very idea of evangelical publishers. And then you're vulnerable to these myths about how they got started. You're reading their story, their history through the lens of whatever I feel like. And for Christians who like fantasy, there's another dimension to that because historically some Christians have objected to fantasy as a genre or aliens or monsters or questionable content or things like that. Uh, that along with the dimension of some Christian fiction uh, not being uh, smiled upon uh, by the tastemakers or the gatekeepers because the style is prosaic or basic. And then you get this myth started that all Christian fiction is inferior to all secular fiction. I think just very gently speculating here, I think this really is an issue of people looking at this issue through their emotions, uh, especially when you get people who are trying to be creative and get through the evangelical gatekeepers and they only get told no. Like, folks, I've been told no by evangelical gatekeepers, but I think for good reasons. Uh, the type of stuff that I'm trying to create, uh, the, the market just isn't there. Right now, the market is there for other things. And yet it's still a very niche genre, at least Christian-made fantasy and sci-fi and such. Mostly fantasy. Um, any thoughts on that? Just the reasons why people gravitate toward these kinds of um, alternate history explanations for where Christian publishers arose in the first place? I have so many thoughts on this. So the first thing I want to say is that for some authors, they tell themselves they're seeking culture change, but what they're really chasing is glory. Yes. They want the glory mm. of being a published author. Yes. If you really want to change culture, there's a easier and much more effective path. And that is to yourself become a gatekeeper or a tastemaker, right? You want to change education. You can do it a little bit as a teacher, but you can do it a lot as a principal or a superintendent or a member of the school board. And seeking those positions of actual influence and actual power, you can make a much bigger difference than trying to be a lowly author. Authors have the least influence on this industry. Um, everyone else has more influence than the author. So if you're really wanting to ch change culture, you know, why write the one book when as a gatekeeper, you could influence all the books <laughs> that get published from your publishing company. And there is value in being a, a gatekeeper, uh, especially in Christian publishing, I'll say, because one of the things that Christian gatekeepers used to do in the 70s and 80s um, was probably the heyday for this, the acquisitions editors at Christian publishing companies had theology degrees. They had been to seminary and a big part of their gatekeeping was to make sure that the theology was good in the books that were being published. That's less true, especially the secular publishing companies don't tend to hire um, acquisitions editors from conservative theological seminaries. And sometimes they don't have a seminary background at all. It's purely a marketing background. Somebody like me, right? I don't have a theology <laughs> background. I have a, a marketing background. I'm the kind of person that's more likely to get a job now at a Christian publishing company rather than somebody who has been in seminary. But there's a real value in that. And because um, gatekeepers, it's not always about saying yes and no. It's also like, hey, your book is really good. 
we want to publish it, but there's this one theological area. Would you look at this uh, passage of scripture and you're doing it with power, right? You're doing it with the power of, I get to say yes or no. The author is way more likely to look at it. They look at it and they're like, oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, I can fix that. I can tweak that, right? The, the use of the power is the threat of it is much more useful than the actual exercising of it, right? Because you can't execute everyone. <laughs> you can't fire everyone. You do have to publish books. And as a gatekeeper, as a tastemaker, you get to make those minor tweaks. And those minor tweaks across hundreds of books make for a major cultural change. And you can also do that as a gatekeeper for a secular company, right? Start, you know, letting in books that are more open to diverse political views and diverse theological views and um, not being so monotone, right? They're, they're, I'm, when I was talking about gatekeepers, I don't want you to get the impression that I think that gatekeeping is an evil thing. <laughs> I think it is like any position of power can be used for good and used for evil and the power amplifies. So a good king can do more good than a good peasant, but a good king can also do more evil than a good peasant. So any position of power is an amplifier. It's, it's why power is very scary. When you grab that sword of power, you have to do it with fear and trembling that you use it for good and, and not for evil. I like that last bit there, especially. Uh, some Christians, I think, because they have grown up under what they perceive as abuse of power, either in their family or a church environment or you know, maybe even in a Christian ministry or something, uh, they are uh, by default skittish about the idea of power. So even in their theology, they will identify quite powerfully, <laughs> pun unintended, uh, with the idea that Jesus surrendered his power. Uh, they really, really enjoy the fact that Christ emptied himself, at least temporarily, of certain divine prerogatives. And then they get nervous about, as you mentioned earlier, Thomas, uh, the doctrine of hell or other doctrines about the nature of God. Uh, the fact that God is holy, God is all-powerful, he is omnipotent, uh, that is good power. And God will also then share, to some extent, this attribute of power with others. Uh, he gave Adam and Eve some degree of power as stewards in the Garden of Eden. He said, go out and make something of my world. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That is an act of power. God is appointing his human regents to bear his image in that way. And then even in a broken world, kings of Israel and even secular kings or priests, I, I love the figure of Melchizedek, the enigma from Genesis. And, and I love the figure of the centurion, the believing centurion who approaches Jesus and begs him to help heal his servant. And the centurion tells Jesus, I'm a man of authority. I command a legion. And he empathizes then with Christ's authority and says, if you will, you can make my servant whole. Jesus does not condemn this centurion for being quite literally a gatekeeper. Uh, this centurion may have had to make some very difficult decisions, even if he's a decent, honorable man. Uh, Jesus believes that that kind of power can be good, but it can also be twisted. And so I, I love that reminder that gatekeeping is not evil. Uh, gatekeeping can keep out false beliefs. It can keep out compromise and it can keep out badly written stories. And so I think that that also gives rise to some of this perception that gatekeeping is bad. And yeah, we definitely want to correct for that. And Jesus was an incredibly powerful person. I, I have not encountered this doctor that he emptied himself of his power. He, he was commanding demons. Well, he was healing the sick. Yeah. He was raising the dead. He was so powerful that he was able to go into the temple 
and overturn tables and whip people. And the response was not to arrest him, but to ask him, how did you become so powerful? Where did you get this authority? Because yes. we recognize that you're an incredibly powerful person. And when they came to kill him, they had to do it in the dead of night on a holiday weekend <laughs> and do it quickly because uh, of how powerful he was. They had they had to. Uh, that's that's how you kill a king. <laughs> like you assassinate a king in a coup sneaking in the dead of night. That's not how you kill someone who has no power. So, yeah, I, I it power is is not good or evil. It is an amplifier. Yeah. And. To say that Jesus had no, I mean, yes, he emptied himself and, and he allowed Temporarily, people to kill him. Yes, but, but he's <laughs> not that way now. No, he, he's not that way fact, now. And he wasn't that way for most of his no. um, ministry. You know, he, he was fleeing because people were trying to make him king too soon. Right? He had yeah. to run away from the crowds uh, because of how much power he had. And, and, the use, and he was cognizant of it being used well and not used for bad. He didn't want people to violently overthrow Herod and put him in the throne. Yeah, and I think there's a difference there between meekness and weakness, right? Jesus was meek. He had power under control. He wasn't weak, you know, like having no power at all. And I, I think there's, uh, those can be confused sometimes. And we, we think of someone as very righteous, but, but they're actually just being weak. <laughs> like that, that's not the same thing at all as, as being, uh, having power under control. You know, back to what you said a minute ago of, uh, you know, we, it's easy to chase glory sometimes uh, under the guise of wanting to influence culture. You know, as I'm reading in um, Andy Crouch's book, culture making, we have to define culture <laughs> very carefully because it's easy just to say, Oh, I, I want to reach the culture. And, and by that meaning I want to change the entire country or the entire continent or world. And that's just really unrealistic. Like that, that's like a one in a billion kind of thing that someone does that, that, a culture can be a very small slice of a society. And first of all, we have to even define what a culture is. But I think that we have to really define our own terms of what we're trying to accomplish and and make those sorts of goals very specific. I, I like how you said we 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 can take these positions of power ourselves or even just create them. Like create a Christian school, create a Christian publisher, create a Christian something. Like it, it's okay to say, I, I want to reach and disciple Christians or, or their friends or, or whatever. And you, you don't have to play by the rules that the world presents us. You know, th- this is, I think, a big shift from boomers to Gen X to millennials to Gen Z is, is sort of this, like, we don't have to conquer the entire world with everything we do. And I, I think we, we had that myth a lot. I, I think that myth is really driven by social media and just the reach of the internet. Oh, I can talk to anyone in the world from my social media account. It's like, well, actually, maybe not, because the algorithm really decides who, who gets boosted. And growing up as a millennial, I heard boomers tell me in person and from the stage how much they'd ruined the, the world and how it was up to us to fix it. <laughs> and we were on a quest to change the world. And and so I entered my adulthood at, with this crusader mindset that I had been programmed uh, from youth that I was like, we're on a quest. We're going to change the world. We're going to be the generation to set things right. And as I grow older, I have realized that I am really struggling to change myself. <laughs> it's like mm. there are character flaws that I see in myself, physical flaws that I see in myself, 
And I'm struggling to change those. <laughs> it's like, I, it's like, how can I expect to clean up the world when I'm struggling to clean up my own bedroom? And I, I've been humbled, right? Because I was like, I am the chosen, in the chosen generation, the, the, Joshua the chosen generation, one right? Author. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, there there, I'm the chosen yep. one, and now I'm like, I'm lucky just to be a blacksmith. <laughs> it's like, I want to do my part and be faithful uh, with where I am, and it's it is really hard to change somebody to truly change them. You can use force to um, tweak how they behave. But to truly change the heart, that's the work of the Holy Spirit and not something we can substitute human power for. You can't, there's no amount of human power that is a substitute for the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit in someone's heart. Amen. Oh, amen to that. And that really gives a kind of the, at best, a half-truth to the idea that every person or, or special people should go out and change the world. That itself could strike us as a power grab. We don't change the world any more than we change ourselves. Jesus changes the world. He will literally remake the planet into the new heavens and new earth. And he is remaking us from the inside out by work of the Holy Spirit. So I think that that is something that every Christian must be putting into practice with wisdom, given the callings that we have. We are not appointed to change the world. As Zach said, we are appointed to faithfulness, simple faithfulness. And I've had to remind myself, you know, even with the slow, steady success of Lorehaven, you know, increasing its audience, slow but sure, uh, and going back to an episode that we did at the turn of last year, 2021, and this idea that we are not trying to look for the chosen one author who's going to clear all the gatekeepers, sell a million dollar contract, sell a million plus copies, and then get a multi-million dollar movie deal. We're not looking for the chosen one author. We are looking for simple faithfulness and this slow, gradual terraforming of Christian expectations for better stories. This applies to anything in Christian publishing. We're not just talking about Christian-made fantasy and science fiction. That's just our interest here at Fantastical Truth. But I think that can apply to any kind of book. We want that kind of faithfulness. We don't want instant world change where you push Elon Musk's launch the nukes and terraform Mars button. Uh, this is something that is going to be slow and steady because that is often how the Holy Spirit works. So slow, a glacial pace sometimes, but oh, the joy of getting to see him work. And then occasionally, yes, you'll get a few breakthroughs and you'll get an author who's doing very well, either inside the system or outside the system. More likely these days, outside the system, uh, somebody will just resonate because you see that they are trying to be faithful to Jesus. They're just trying to live in obedience, love their wives, uh, raise their children well, uh, and then create with excellence. And then we get to enjoy the fruit of that. We get to enjoy these excellent stories at Fantastical Truth. Uh, Lorehaven reviews them every week. Uh, it, is, it is a great blessing to see that happen. And how much more a blessing then when there's not these power struggles in the way. Uh, you've got more Christian creators who are just launching off on their own, inventing their own system, just like they did back in the old days. In the old days, they did like more of a publishing company, like um, uh, your guest mentioned uh, Revel and Moody Publishing. I mean, those are still around, and I'm glad that they are. But even those can carry some you know, expectations now. Traditional uh, presses can expect you know, pastors to have a following, or you know, it seems to be a lot of pastors who tend to get at least the nonfiction book contracts if you're a non-pastor type of person with a story to share, then you can go out increasingly and learn from Novel Marketing or the Christian Publishing Show or any of your resources, Thomas, and many other resource providers, and you can learn to do it on your own. And 
I, I still think though, and maybe we'll close with this. I still think there need to be some gatekeepers though. Like I think you need to watch your life and doctrine closely if you're going out setting yourself up as a leader, as an influencer. Uh, but that is something that I think that Christians can do with one another in the new institutions that we're starting. And in particularly with emphasis on the local church. It's important to submit yourself to authority and not see yourself as a, as a king who is under no one else, right? The, the body um, keeps itself healthy. No part of the body can operate healthily on its own, right? You cut your hand off, the hand dies. The body doesn't die, the hand dies. So it's important to be connected to the body. It's it submitted, um, it says in the Bible, submit yourselves one to another. And I think that's important. And submitting yourself to, you know, the authorities that God has placed over you. And I will say on my publishing show, the Christian publishing show, um, I used to be a literary agent and for a long time, the, the podcast was sponsored by a literary agency. So I'm not hostile to the traditional approach. Uh, what I'm hostile towards is people in either faction saying that the other side doesn't work or the other side is poor all the time. There are a lot of poor traditionally published authors and there's a lot of rich traditionally published authors. And the same with indie. You, and neither path is easier. That's it's like, what's easier to learn the piano or the guitar? It's like, well, to get concert level, it's a lot of work for both. It's about 10,000 hours of practice for both. Now, there are advantages to the piano, disadvantages to the piano, and the same with the guitar. And what is a better fit for you depends on you. <laughs> so some people are better fit for indie. Some people are better fit for traditional. And part of that depends on, are you the kind of author that the publishing companies are set up to serve well? If you're writing romance, there's a bunch of really strong uh, Christian romance publishers that know how to take a book and successfully move a lot of copies. Whereas if you're writing in other genres, uh, the path is less paved in ahead of you. I think uh, Christian uh, in, in the fantasy and science fiction space, the indie authors are make the top indie authors are making more than the top uh, traditionally published authors. The Christian publishers haven't quite figured out how to sell Christian fantasy. And I think it's in doing no small part to the fact that they're ignoring the homeschool market. And so as long as you ignore the homeschool market, you know, I, I go to a homeschool convention, there's not a single Christian publisher with a booth, right? There's hundreds of thousands of dollars changing hands and the Christian publishers aren't there at all. And so as long as they're ignoring that market, uh, they're going to really struggle to sell. So it, it depends not just on you and your strengths and weaknesses, but also on um, what the genre is that you're writing. But yeah, you still need to submit yourself to an editor. You still need to submit yourself to uh, your pastor. But before I published um, Courtship in Crisis, I had my pastor look it over <laughs> and and he suggested changes that I incorporated. <laughs> like I was like, oh, that's a good point. That that's could great. be misunderstood. And I think that's really important. I, I, just because um, the internet gives us the ability to um, kind of be alone, that doesn't mean that that's a good thing, right? There's a difference between hopping over an island uh, full of enemies and not landing on any islands whatsoever. <laughs> like you have to land somewhere and submit yourself to somebody. Well, and that may be a great action step for any Christian authors listening is take your book to your pastor and have them be one of your beta readers, you know, have them help you along in, in shaping the, the themes and the messages you're putting in your fiction. Um, and, you know, sometimes we just have to adjust what we're aiming for. I, I, there's this there's this tension in my mind between a proverb that says, do you see a man highly skilled in his work? He will not toil in obscurity. He will uh, stand before uh, Kings, stand before Kings. Yes. 
Versus where Jesus says, um, tells about the the parable of the the man that chases the lost sheep and leaves the ninety nine, and he says, if just one sinner repents, the angels celebrate in heaven. And sometimes, you know, it's not that we lower our standards, but but sometimes we just have to uh, be patient and and just enjoy each reader as they come for, for who they are, and not chase the numbers. You know, this is a big debate happening just in the the uh, the church growth space. You know, we could probably talk for a whole hour about that, about the mega church versus the small church. And the fact is, there's a ton more small churches. <laughs> the average church is 120 people, I believe. And so that's okay too. There is a big difference between saying, I don't like romance, and romance is a terribly written genre. And what we see a lot are people who don't prefer the genre of Christian whatever. And they make these big blanket statements that all Christian movies are bad. Like, actually, if you compare a Christian film to a film of a similar budget in the secular world, the Christian film is actually incredibly high quality. As somebody who watches a lot of indie films, they're really hit and miss, right? The <laughs> typical Christian film has about the budget of a kind of a typical horror film. And that Christian film is way better, right? These horror films that have the same amount of money, way lower quality. And some people like watching horror. They like watching low-budget films that give them a certain feeling. Most people don't, right? The, the people who like horror really like horror, and the people who don't really don't. And the same is true with Christian. And it's it's really arrogant to say this whole genre full of books I have not read is terrible. And it's an, a statement out of ignorance. It's like, how many Amish books have you actually read? Like, you're saying they're all bad, but have you read any of them? <laughs> like, and And once you do, you'll probably say, it's not for me, right? It's a big, it's like saying Mexican food is a terrible cuisine as opposed to saying, I don't like Mexican food. It's like the, really the only statement that you can say in good intellectual honesty, it, it, if you haven't had a lot of Mexican food, is just, or I don't like it, right? Because other people like it and they're enjoying it and their opinions are just as valid as yours. Right? Unless you really believe in like the upper class's opinions are more valuable. <laughs> then, right, then it, the tastemakers matter a little bit more. It really does, especially for Christians, come down to motives. And Christians, I think, however, tend to have a bad habit. If we have a strong opinion about something, we feel like we need to enhance that opinion with some kind of spiritual modifier. Uh, we've got to instead, and instead of just saying, well, yeah, I don't, I don't like romance books, uh, we've got to say, well, romance books are evil. There's something wrong with them, you know, implying that they're problematic, which is just a nicety secular way now of saying sinful without saying sinful. Well, is it really sinful? Like you make sure that you're not overstating these things. If you don't like the Christian fiction that you have read, then talk about that. Uh, don't jump into some kind of fake alternative history for how the Christian publishers got there. And especially for a Christian who has had some negative experience growing up in a conservative environment or a church or a parachurch group, or maybe for some aspiring authors out there, you got turned down by that Christian publisher because your manuscript had a bad word. Don't explain that. Don't find a language for your feelings that is based in untruth about the origin story of Christian publishers or about the nature of Christian publishing gatekeeper today. Uh, everybody is struggling. The book market keeps shifting a lot. Uh, a lot of people in Christian publishers, as well as general market publishers, are just trying to do their best. Uh, they may be affected by false beliefs, uh, particularly at the uh, the general market level. 
or they may be uh, affected by all kinds of clashing expectations at the Christian publishing level. Uh, I think that we can observe the truth of what's going on there, uh, but also have grace and compassion for people. And we certainly should not get rid of the idea of gatekeeping altogether. Uh, I'm all for uh, independent publication. We review independent Christian-made fantasy sci-fi novels all the time at Lorehaven. We want to support that kind of thing. But for any authors eavesdropping on this conversation, definitely get good gatekeepers. Make sure that you are getting good editors, honest feedback from people who are not your mom. Listen to Thomas's podcasts and learn how to get good and how to believe well. Be part of a local church. Uh, submit yourself to those legitimate spiritual authorities in your lives. Uh, you're not being following market forces there. Uh, you're trying to be more like Jesus and you're trying to glorify him, reflecting his image back to him as an act of worship through your creative work. That is your chief end, not becoming a world changer, not becoming an influencer. And make sure you get some healing, by the way, for any of that bad spiritual experience you have. Uh, make sure that you get healing from that in the local church and from the Word of God. And then secondly, from whatever stuff you create. So let's draw to a close there then. Uh, Thomas, uh, where can people track Novel Marketing, Christian Publishing Show, and all of your efforts to help equip uh, authors, uh, Christian and otherwise. It's real easy. You just add a .com. So Christian Publishing Show, you can find it at the christianpublishingshow.com and Novel Marketing, you can find at novelmarketing.com. Thomas, it's been great to have you. Really appreciate your insight from the inside. And I wish you Godspeed as you continue to equip authors to work with excellence and glorify God as well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Thomas. Stephen, that was a really fun talk with Thomas. Um, it's really great just to talk to him on air. Uh, I've learned so much of what I know about podcasting from him. So I, I hope I did everything right because I feel like uh, he's so great at this. Uh, I, I want to match his uh, skill and his style. I also really love some of the things he said, particularly love your enemy by reducing his ability to do evil against you. Wow, what a profound thought. And don't chase or don't lie to yourself and say you're chasing influence when actually you're chasing glory. And we need to really focus most of all on faithfulness. So uh, I think that's a good word for everyone, whether you're a creator or you're a fan. We live in the age of uh, just hyper self-promotion everywhere. And so don't, don't chase that. Chase faithfulness. Zach, I fully agree. When you hear somebody with such a marketing experience remind you the biblical worldview, not to be chasing glory, but to instead focus on God's glory. That's what you want to hear uh, from somebody who teaches people how to channel ambition in a more biblical and a more wise direction. That's 100% the way to go. Uh, we don't just stick our talents in the ground and act so humble that we never get anything done, uh, that we never share the work that we do or try to pursue it with excellence. Uh, but you also don't want to just be constantly throwing your stuff in people's faces and being obnoxious and ineffective about it chasing glory instead of using your marketing, using the stories, if you have any, uh, for God's glory, not your own. I'm really grateful to hear that from Thomas, and particularly with application to this question of gatekeepers, that the love your enemies by not letting them have power over you bit, every Christian ought to empathize with that. And I'm not sure that I had fully made that connection before. Christians now act like, well, I'm not going to let that abusive pastor tell me what to do. I'm not going to let that corrupt politician tell me what to do. I think those are great impulses. Why then would you make an exception constantly for secular gatekeepers who are often trying to tell Christians what to do? They're trying to set our tastes and they're trying to often uh, keep Christians out of the publishing industry. 
They may just be going along with the trend or they may truly believe it. Either way, as Thomas said, the result is the same. Uh, This is a good reason often, but not always, uh, for Christians to start their own communities, uh, their own publishing companies, and try to spend less time fighting people uh, and more time actually sharing the stories that God has laid on our hearts. You can email us, by the way, with any questions, thoughts about that discussion, podcast at lorehaven.com, or look up Lorehaven on the Facebook, on the Instagram, or on the Twitter. Just search for Lorehaven and we'll pop right up. Next on Fantastical Truth, tis Valentine's Day, the season for love in reality and in our favorite stories. This means we can enter safe and family-friendly territory, right? Ha 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 ha. In fact, romance tales raise all kinds of controversies and temptations including but not limited to a certain new movie that recently offered on-screen sensual content, such as, frankly, undressed persons, in what they felt was a redemptive way. Well, we've already talked about the problems with exploiting actors for visual stories, but what about sensual stuff on the page, not the screen? Fortunately, we have an inside agent in the romance industry, Parker J. Cole, She can help us explore mail-order brides and monster myths, and she's going to rejoin Fantastical Truth to help us waltz right into these slippery issues of sensuality and stories. Meanwhile, if you are a Christian fan often frustrated by the anti-Christian attitudes you discern from general markets or publishers, realize that some of those feelings are valid. There are enemies out there. Christians do have enemies in the world. Jesus told us to expect them. He told us to be shrewd as serpents, but gentle as doves. Let's make sure to pursue that paradoxal reaction to the attitudes in the world around us. Let's remember to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, but realize that persecution can actually happen. And in fact, we should expect some of that, even if we're doing everything right in the world as Christians who continue to seek and find our author's fantastical truth. 